Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighters Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. This is Southpaw, Deep Space Nine, Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh eyes, and Scott is back, the veteran Trek fan. How are you, Scott? I'm, I'm back. I'm much better and um, COVID-free. Great. We are discussing Episode 19, Blood Oath. Scott. Can you tell us about this episode? I'd love to. Odo and Quark argue that an elder Klingon is taking advantage of a hollow suite, which now has Klingon battles. Odo turns the hollow suite off, and we meet Kor, a drunken Klingon. Odo looks over his face over the file, and he's confused. Another elder Klingon named Koloth comes, and they're both Dahar masters. Koloth and Kar have a spat. And Kor is called a disgrace. Odo talks to Dax about the drunken Klingons. Dax notices their names, makes a face. Dax insists Kor is let go of the drunk tanks. It turns out that Kurzon, one of Dax's previous symbiotes, was a good friend of Kor and is happy to meet the new Dax. My beloved old friend, they say. Koloth is also happy to reunite with Dax. But there is also a third friend, Kang, who is talked about. They all knew each other 81 years ago when they made a blood pact. They're on, they're on a search for the albino. But right now, the reasons are unclear. Kang shows up and recently finds out that he got the coordinates where they believe the albino is. It is time to settle the score. Dax explains to Kang that one of Curzon's most proudest moments 
was when he was made godfather of Kang's child, and that Curzon really identified with Klingon culture, and this time spent with Klingon people really made a big impact on their life. All we know is that Dax made a blood oath, and Kang says that Dax is released from honoring Curzon's death, which would culminate in the end of eating the albino's heart. Dax asks Kira how many people Kira has killed, and she just says, too many. Dax is having a lot of thoughts about killing the albino. You see, 80 years ago, 81 years ago, the albino was a pirate who was causing problems. Three Klingon ships with Curzon there stopped the albino and destroyed his pirate base. He escaped and promised revenge by way of killing the three Klingons' firstborn sons, which he did by infecting them with a genetic disorder, one of those children being Dax's godson, Kang's son, named Dax. Kang and Koloth do not want Dax to come. They believe the debt left, the debt was left when Curzon died. Kor is good with Dax going, and Dax asks Kor to speak for her to fight. Dax meets Koloth in the Hollow Suite, practicing his Batlith, which is like that awesome Klingon traditional weapon. He's like doing his Batlith forms, Kata. Dax has the Hollow Suite create her a battle grade Batlith and challenges Koloth to fight for the right for revenge. Like the Beastie Boys, fight for your right for revenge. <laughs> yeah, I did that. That was terrible. I'm sorry. The battle does end in Kolot's favor, but they realize that Dax is an honorable teammate, but still are like, you cannot come with us. After enough, finally they accept Dax. They begrudgingly uh, say that she has to become citing her Kajunpak, which is like, Klingon chutzpah, audacity, courage, you know? You have Kajunpak, what can I say? As Dax goes, gets ready to go to fight, um, Cisco shows up. He's like, you know, you can't do this. And she's like, you know I'm going to do this. And he's like, I know you're going to do this. And then as they get there, as they get ready to go meet and fight the albino, Dax realizes that this is a sacrifice operation. Dax notes that Klingons treat death like a lover. It turns out that Kang made a deal with the albino some time ago, that they would have a glorious battle versus his 40 ships. But Dax decides that they do not need to die, or at least have a fighting chance, so they disrupt the phasers on all the ships and, and the, the base, and they bombard the base and ships with Tetrion particles. They land on Secarus Four. Dax notes that there is a mine underneath the albino's main gate. They enter the compound. All tech is not able to be used, so they will have to fight using their fighting skill. And Klingons love fighting using their fighting skills. Dax's squad easily takes down the albino squad, but Kala dies Kang and the albino fight. Kang's batlith breaks, and albino wounds Kang. And Dax gets her blade on the albino's throat. Dax has him dead to rights, and the albino taunts her. And as he does that, Kang stabs the albino in the back 
thanking Dax for having the honor to avenge. Kang dies after saying it is a good day to die, but Dax points out it's a never good day to lose a friend, and Kor sings war, war music. Dax meets Sisko and Kira at Deep Space Nine. They make a suggestive look. Maybe they'll never look at each other the same. One piece of throwaway fact that came up in this episode, which seems like it's now part of canon, is like life expectancy. I don't think just for the Klingons. I actually just think in general, something you talked about in previous episodes, where now the technology and medical technology is so good, you could treat a lot of the things that were untreatable today. So you have to assume people can now live longer in the future. Yeah, even humans live longer in the Star Trek times. I think that was more of a hat tip to just like, hey, if we're being realistic here and they have all this tech and all this medical technology, then you can assume humanoid species are probably living to about 150. Now, the premise of this episode reminds me of the concept of the end of history. The book with that title came out a few years before this series. And it's the capitalist theory that if two countries have the same chain restaurants, they won't fight. Neoliberalism has won. But things didn't get better after neoliberalism won. It just got better for rich Westerners and they stopped fighting. They didn't stop fighting everybody else. They just stopped fighting each other. Now, Kang talks about warriors now opening Klingon restaurants and almost says the end of history. And also one of the Klingons is a history teacher. So I don't know if this was purposeful or not, but I do know in the 90s, that was very much a popular thought that it was the end of history, that neoliberalism had won, the West had won, and now everything's going to be great and there will be peace and prosperity. And yeah, maybe for them. It also reminded me of movie plots where it's taking place after World War II and ex-soldiers or survivors took an oath to kill a certain Nazi once they found him. So it very much reminded me of those type of storylines. It's totally a movie. It's like we're, we're getting the band back together for the final <laughs> tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even that explosion, I was kind of like surprised they went for it. I'm like, damn, usually, you know, they don't have budgets for that, but they went for it. Yes. Also, something to know is that the writers for Deep Space Nine are huge Klingon fans. And it's something that you will see as the show progresses, that they love the Klingons. I mean, what's not to love? The, the, I think as far as uh, the Klingons really, when fleshed out, are a really interesting, fun culture. And they, they, they get a lot of love over time because, you know, the way they were introduced in the original series, not so great at all. And they, they get a lot of fleshing out and growth, uh, especially in Deep Space Nine and Discovery also and some other places. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, 
fighters through. Break free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now. Bonus articles. Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. To that point about Klingons, let's talk about that Klingon fight scene with Dex. Well, I think it's really cool that it's very consistent with the character of Dax is, and the character of Curzon. Curzon sort of had a swashbuckling edge to him. So that he would have been versed in how to use a batleth makes sense. And if you think about these creatures, these beings, the, the trill and the symbiote living so many lifetimes, they're going to have knowledge of different types of martial arts and would likely be pretty good, decent martial artists. Even when she's at the Hollow Suite and she has like the Hollow Suite design her uh, the, a certain type of batleth, you're like, oh, she knows what the fuck she's talking about, you know? Um, and her her love her love of Klingon culture is very evident and is something that will follow us as the show goes on. The people involved, the choreographers, actually, they did a good job. This is probably the best fight scene I've seen so far in DS9. Oh, easily, yeah. And I could tell they're limited by budget, but they did a good job staying consistent to an imagined style. No, and that, you know, the Makbara, you know, the Klingon form of martial arts, is expounded upon in the Star Trek lore. Like, there is a rhyme and reason to the way the Klingons fight and the reasons and different forms and styles. And it, it, it goes a little bit deeper in, in the further down you go with Trek. Now this episode was deep about honor. And it probably was what Westerner stereotype Japanese Bushido culture to be. But Bushido is actually bullshit, and it's just a mix of Christianity and Western masculinity culture with Japanese samurai aesthetics, which is why Westerners love samurais, because they're really in love with themselves. Look up the article, Bushido Way of Total Bullshit. Google that, and you'll learn more about the history and how it's all made up and how it's connected to the West and Christianity. So this isn't really honor then. This is just toxic masculinity and unprocessed trauma. That doesn't mean it doesn't make for an interesting story, though. Now, I was the whole time curious if they were really going to do this mission with no chance of survival. Again, hearkening to kamikaze pilot myths or Viking myth of burning ships so they couldn't retreat. The West loves this stuff to valorize themselves, dying in a blaze of glory but also to demonize the enemy. But kamikaze pilots didn't actually want to die. When they ran out of fuel or they were too damaged to land, they would crash their planes into ships instead of crashing into the ocean. Vikings sometimes burned boats for funerals, but ships were really valuable for trade. Otherwise, what's the point of battle? So as soon as you're about to start the battle, burning the ship wouldn't make any sense. So it's all meant for drama and storytelling and propaganda. 
Now, in this episode, what I found interesting was this whole time you don't think it's going to happen or Dax won't go through with it, but she does. And then she comes back to work and no one says shit, right? To your point, they give each other looks and you're like, okay, you know, is this going to permanently alter anything? That's how the episode leaves that open-ended, but you know, we know it's going to cycle back. But I like that. I like that because it's not what was expected. I didn't think that she was going to actually do this. I didn't think this would actually happen. And it's these little signs and foreshadowing that there are things more important than Federation rules. And also supporting our crewmates is more important than rules. And loyalty and supporting our friends is more important than rules, which opens a lot as far as storytelling for future conflicts and other dynamics. And what they're doing in the Klingon culture, they're not breaking Klingon rules. Ah, yeah, that's a good point, right? They're breaking Federation rules, but they're sticking to Klingon rules. Right. So like, revenge and and blood oaths and stuff like that in Klingon culture are valid. And again, she she technically didn't kill the albino. And I think that was Kang from the beginning. We found out that Kang was trying to protect Dax, right? That was kind of a reveal. And in the end, if you really think about it, that was Kang trying to protect Dax again. Because Dax could have been killed or Dax could have killed the albino and Kang was going to die anyway. And Kang is like, let me die with this blood on my hands. You don't need this on your hands. So I like that consistency with the character. And also in this episode, we've seen in past episodes that Jazia Dax is her own person, right? She's carrying the symbiote, but she has her own qualia, her own way of interpreting the symbiote. Whereas in this episode, now we really know like, things like that, things that were really important to the symbiote or the previous host does carry on to a very powerful degree. And even Dax said she was surprised how much it mattered to her. So now we've seen both sides of it, right? Like how you can be your own person, but also how much of what's happened in the past and how much of the symbiote is important to the host. It's it's so interesting and so complex and yeah, it was just a really nice episode of developing Jadzia a little more and Dax and, and seeing how Jadzia would would relate to an incident that happened 80 years ago before she existed, you know? We've talked about the middle episodes, but the last three, I know you weren't here for the last two, but this one and the previous two were all pretty good. They were all bangers, so... I'm seeing now like, hey, not all middle episodes have to be bad. They can do good ones. Yeah, this is like a four star out of five star non-mythology episode. I really liked it. Now the actual fight with the albino reminded me of like a mission to kill a drug lord or the war on drugs or some bullshit like that. Maybe some of the writers were thinking it's Cuban chuds wanting to kill Castro. I don't know. But they actually had Dax go and assassinate somebody, or actually she didn't do it, but was part of the mission to assassinate someone based on revenge and a blood oath. And that was very, very unexpected. And they actually went for it. That's what I kept thinking in this episode. Wow, you went there. You went for it. Yeah. And that was unexpected, especially because of how season one went and how this season so far is gone. Now I know, oh, you'll go there. What other things do you have in store for me? What other times will I be like, oh, shit, you did that. You had the character to do that, you know? So it's kind of, I think for me, right? Somebody watching with fresh eyes who's 
never watched the series at all before, it's like, okay, this is kind of like, even though it's non-mythology, it's one of those episodes where you're starting to get a sense of how this show is going to be different. In hindsight, right, we already know this is a popular show for a lot of people. This is a lot of people's favorite Star Trek series. Which is a newer thing. It was the the popularity of Deep Space Nine is has to do with streaming. It was it was a cult it was a cult show when it was on. And now when you say Deep Space Nine is my favorite Trek, people go, Oh yeah. That, okay. Where there used to be a time where saying Deep Space Nine was your favorite Trek got a lot of pushback. And <laughs> it's sort of like saying Enterprise is your favorite Trek or Voyager is your favorite Trek. Well, no one I've I've never met someone whose favorite Trek is Enterprise, but <laughs> there are some people who love Voyager and I think all of the new shows are pretty good. But Deep when Deep Space Nine came out, it was it was considered contrarian to like it. Because of episodes like this, because it was so unlike Trek, because it was going there in a way that that no Trek had gone before. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like storytelling wise, as far as the art of drama, this is like the first time where I felt like, okay, so this is a bit of what people are talking about, where you're like, oh, these characters are going to go there, right? I mean, it's not just about Jazia Dax. It's also like the rest of the crew where they're like, oh yeah, you just went on a blood oath mission to seek revenge and you're back. Okay, you know what? Come back. Okay, we'll accept you, right? Yeah, especially Cisco. He said his part, don't go, but then she gave him the choice and Cisco made the decision. So it's also on him. So that's like really saying something about the show. And I think for the writers, they were like, probably when they were writing this, there's going to be a lot of fans who probably don't like this, but this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to differentiate ourselves as writers. And it's like, oh, yo, I got to go avenge my friend's kid's death from 80 years ago. You know, it's like, okay. You know, it's like sort of a, you know, it's like a, a morally okay thing to go do. I just, I, I like, I like that trope of like the old haggard guys being like, we're, we're not what we used to be, but we're going to do this. And, you know, sort of like knowing what they're doing, trying to go to their version of Valhalla or whatever. Um, and I really do like Klingons and I like the culture that they, that they portray and how they do that. And I just thought the acting was fantastic. I laughed a bunch of times. Yeah, it's it's good Trek. It's like easy, enjoyable Trek. It's like a nice cold beer. Like in every culture you go to, there's like a cold beer you can get that's just good. Any culture, there's that like the the particular beer you can get and it's just cold and delicious and it's just what you want. And that's what I thought this episode was. Now, who survived at the end? I know Dax survived. Did anybody else survive? Just Core. Uh, I like that too, right? It wasn't like completely doomy where everybody died except Dax. It was kind of like, you know, we lost some friends along the way, right? But you have members still alive to tell their tale. 
What's the next episode, Scott? Join us here next time where we're going to be doing a two-parter called The McKee, part one and part two. So we're going to meet the McKee. We're going to learn about them. And and they have nothing to do with any other Trek or at all. There's no reason why there's two episodes. <laughs> now, can you at least tell me, is the McKee a species or is that like a family? Neither. Okay. Until then. Ta-da-da!